0: This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant
1: Women Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity.
0: My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome to the final episode of season four. This is it. Season cuatro. Cuatro. That's it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we are wrapping up after this one because Alicia, if you weren't with us last episode, Alicia had a very big announcement. Alicia, do you want to make that announcement again for those folks who are just tuning in maybe for the first time ever? Yeah. Or maybe because they just weren't interested in
1: Daphne de Maurier? (laughs) They didn't listen. I'm having a baby. I'm having a bebe in about two weeks' time. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Two weeks' time is crazy. It's It's terrifying. I'm very, very scared. And I also feel like I have – I feel like he's going to come early. I feel Mm. like it's (sighs) going to happen. Well, but fingers
0: crossed it doesn't happen within the next two hours while we're recording this podcast <laughs> because this is the final thing that we need to do before you go into it. Well, on my radar, I'm sure you have many, yeah, many things Yeah, I have other things to do. do.
1: I have other things I'd like to do before the baby comes as well. We do
0: also have a Patreon episode to
1: record before the baby comes. That's <laughs> true. Prioritise. If, if you wouldn't mind yeah, just holding out. I've got to That's prioritise a few things, don't I? Yes, but that is going to be happening very, very soon. <laughs> so it does mean that we are wrapping up for 2020. However, we will be back in 2021 with Season 5. Can season you five? believe it? I can't. Can you believe it? <laughs> I genuinely can't. But We've been doing yeah, cool. oh that really cool. for ages. Yeah. And we're still friends. We haven't even
0: <laughs> killed each other. Or- we actually haven't had very many issues no. Podcast-related friendship. No. Tensions that I've been aware of. <laughs> I mean, maybe we have, and you've just been very kind of passive-aggressive and quiet about it, but, you know, yeah, certainly on look. my end,
1: everything's felt very cruisy. Actually, I have another podcast called I Hate Lauren. <laughs> it's on a different network, and I yeah. just talk about... Well, that was smart, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I look, and I am very, very happy to come back for season five. There'll probably be some screaming baby mm. in the background of season five, mm. so we'll see how that pans just, out. Just you know, get some gin on your finger
0: and wipe it on his gums. You know, about half mm. an hour before we record, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, whiskey like, on the
1: it's whiskey on the nipple. I thought. Oh yeah, That's okay, what cool. To do. Well,
0: both? Why not? Yeah, you never know. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
1: Just double down on that. It's
0: just, just like all the mothers of all time before us did. Anyway, we're not advocating for that, obviously. No Something else that I think that we should mention is that we are recording this episode on the 3rd of November, Australian <gasps> time, which means that our US friends are going to be waking up in a couple of hours from when we're recording to head out into the scary, scary world. Uh, if you haven't <laughs> already, cast your ballots to cast your ballots. And we just want to say that, oh my God we're thinking of you we're gonna keep our fingers crossed fingers toes legs arms everything (laughs) that's possible to cross i'm gonna put my hair in braids everything (laughs) because we are hoping that when this episode actually does come out whenever you're listening to this maybe you're listening to it in a different world and we hope that that is a world for the better and not a world that's on fire so (laughs)
1: Yeah, Uh, yes, yes. So it will be very interesting to see where Mm. we're at in uh, a couple of weeks' time. But yes, definitely do go out and vote. You don't need us to tell you that. You should already know. Well, it's It's too late. It's it's too late. That's right. It's too too (laughs) late by the time you're listening to this. We hope you did. (laughs) We hope you did vote. So, yeah, I guess we'll see where that's at. And of course, even though we're finishing up the season for the year, we'll still be on the social medias. So. You can still interact with us there and I guess we'll, you know, we'll try if we can. No guarantees, Mm -hmm. but we might even try for a Christmas special this year if we can. If we can. (laughs) That is on you. Yeah, that is on me, yeah. In which case we will be able to wrap up and see where we are in the world Uh, Mm -hmm. by the time Christmas comes. So, But in the meantime, Lauren, what are we going to be doing in this Our final episode for 2020.
0: Yes. Well, this woman is actually somebody who I honestly have no idea if you would have ever heard of before because she's incredibly famous in certain parts of the world and within certain circles. But I think her influence um, maybe hasn't made it into the West beyond these certain circles.
1: Oh, my God. You just keep saying the word certain Certain circles. <laughs> what certain does that
0: mean? Certain circles. Certain circles. I am talking about the Iranian poet, mid-century groundbreaking
1: poet, Forouzad. I'm going to say maybe. Okay. <laughs> Depends very much on where we go from here and okay. what she wrote.
0: Well, let's dive into her because, as I said, she is a mid-century poet from Iran and she broke taboos really about what women could write and what they could say and she broke up with one of the first Iranian poets to break away from this thousand-year-old tradition of Persian poetry and write in a modernist style and that was controversial enough as it was she is today one of Iran's most beloved poets she is a superstar a celebrity of the highest order and her work and her life are of course super fascinating. So I hope if you haven't heard of her, I got totally absorbed in her poetry. I had a bloody marvellous time reading oh, her poetry and excellent. I have quite a few excerpts to share with you in this episode uh, as we deconstruct the life and times of Phorephoroxade.
1: Wow, that's exciting. I, I don't think I, I don't think I do know her actually. Mm. I don't think I do know anything about her. I think maybe I was thinking of somebody else. So, well, you will know her after this.
0: Now, before I begin with her biography, I just want to say that I did start to go down a few uh, rabbit holes of literary criticism of her poems. and
1: obviously, Oh, gee, Lauren, how, how surprising. <laughs> There's obviously a
0: lot out there and I am clearly going to link, as I always do, to some of those major papers if anybody does want to read more about it. And so this is to preface basically to say that, yes, of course, there are a huge number of different interpretations of her her work, the significance that it has in terms of her own autobiography because a lot of scholars read her poetry as being very autobiographical but of course Mm. we cannot guarantee that that is a particular reading that we should take of any poet's work and how much she was influenced by things like feminism and sexuality in particular because a lot of her poems are about, you know, really intimate aspects of female desire of sexuality of relationships and as i said she broke a lot of taboos broke down a lot of barriers in terms of what had been written about in persian poetry before another thing that's really worthwhile of keeping in mind is that poetry within this context in iran and in in persian culture is so important i think in ways that we in the west don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have in the same way you know so when I say that this is a poet who is a superstar like she is a superstar (laughs) there's there's no way a poet could become a superstar on the same level I think in you know in Australia as uh, or perhaps in the US or the UK the same way that they can in Persia and Iran and Persian culture does have this you know, extraordinary thousand-year history of poetry and she is just one figure amongst a plethora of extraordinary poets. So this is also just to say maybe go and check out some Persian poetry because it's Sweet. great. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Well, the other thing that I'm going to begin by is a little quote of hers from, I think she was around 28, 29 or so when she said this, and it's about the significance of her biography in relation to her poetry, because of course we're going to be talking about the significance of her biography in relation to her poetry. So she had this to say. I really think talking about it is tiring and pointless. I mean, it is a fact after all that everyone who comes into the world has a date of birth, lives in a city or village, studies at school, and experiences a handful of very ordinary and conventional events that occur when all is said and done for everyone. Like falling into the courtyard pool as a child or, for example, cheating at school, falling in love in one's youth, getting married, these sorts of things. But if the point to this question is the explanation of a handful of circumstances and issues relating to one's life work, which in my case is poetry, then I have to say that the time for such a review has not yet arrived because I have just recently begun dealing with poetry in a serious way. Ooh so 28 yeah so let's just keep that in mind as well as we delve into a biography that she didn't deem to be particularly important so
1: (laughs) (laughs) and relevant to her work yeah (laughs) which is exactly what we are going to do right exactly what we're going to
0: do and of course what many many scholars have also done so all right so farak was born i think on the 5th of january 1935 though i have read um late december 1934 in other accounts but we'll we'll say january 5th, 1935, to military colonel Mohammed Bagar Farqsad and Turan Vaziri Tabar in Tehran. Uh, she was the third of seven children.
1: Whoa, seven. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, it's the 30s, you know. Yeah, that's true. It's the 2020s, and I'm getting around to one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's Would it. you like six more? No. I think maybe I'll be dead at one. We'll yeah. see.
0: We'll see. <laughs> There was a lot of change happening in Iran. Uh, when she was a child around this time. So it was sort of at the end of the reign of Reza Shah Pahlavi, who was the Shah of Iran, a man who led the way for a lot of modernization of Iran. Some say it was too rapid a modernization or too Western a modernization, but he introduced a huge range of social, economic, and political reforms, which included things like the banning of chadors for women, which are the full-length cloak, that women wear that leaves only the face exposed. He also removed Shiite Muslim control of a lot of institutions and secularised public schools, which mm. he also made co-educational.
1: Yeah, right.
0: And so there was a lot of things like that that I suppose we in the West would deem as cool, but, of course, we don't want to bring a Western lens to that because, of mm. course, he also in kind of trying to modernise, he also ended up causing a lot of, well, disruption and, and frankly, discrimination to a lot of ethnic groups mm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: across Iran. But Farah Sad's father, being a military man, he was quite close to a lot of these changes and it also meant that the family, they belonged to the emerging middle class. Yeah. So they weren't, like, rich but they were comfortable. Nice family home with a courtyard, garden, you know, the family would sleep on the roof. On hot summer nights, and she and her sister would play in the stream that ran through the courtyard. Um, her father had this huge library of books, and she was very influenced by his sort of love for literature. And he also raised his all of his children were encouraged to read, which was particularly progressive in a society that had largely kept girls from you know that level of education up until quite recently, and. Of her childhood, I want to read an excerpt from one of her poems, which I think, again, is going to paint us a lovely picture of this childhood that she had. And this is a poem called Those Days from her collection, Another Birth. Those days are gone those silent days of snow, when behind the glass in a warm room I would peek at the street, over and over, a soft fresh fuzz, the snowflakes rested on an old wooden ladder, on a slack clothing line on the tresses of the old pines, and I would think about tomorrow tomorrow a white slippery mass it would start in the whispers of grandmother's shadow her tangled shadow would appear in the threshold of a door that would release itself into the feeling of a cold ray of light and into the scrambled pattern of pigeon flights on the colorful goblets by the window the warmth of Corsi was drowsing but fearless and ferocious I away from my mother's alert eyes would wipe out worthless lines from my old homework and I'm just going to skip forward a little bit because it's a long poem, to something else that reveals... So this, is, I guess, paints a lovely picture of her kind of domestic home life. And here's a little picture of her young interior life. Those days of wonder at the body's secrets... Those days of cautious acquaintance with the blue veined beauty of a hand that with a flower beckoned another hand from behind a wall. And it was love, that quivering feeling which suddenly enveloped us in a corridor's darkness and enthralled us in the burning fullness of breaths and beating hearts and furtive smiles. Ooh. I
1: like Ooh. Isn't it delicious? Oh it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> oh Shields. Can I actually can I ask? So I'm assuming this is in translation. Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. she wrote Mm -hmm. in Persian obviously yes absolutely yeah and so so who do we know where these particular translations that you're giving us are from there's a
0: couple of different versions of translations I actually looked most of the poems that I looked up I could find a couple of different versions of the translations from and again I can link to those in the show Mm. notes if anyone wants to to look them yeah
1: because that's something else that's always fascinating as well when we talk about Writers and especially poets, I think. I think it really. I mean, obviously, it applies to any kind of writing that we read whatsoever, mm. even if it's just you know writing for simple communication rather than for prose or beauty or whatever. Yeah. But especially when it comes to us talking oh, yeah. about someone who's working in poetry, that whole idea of how we translate and change mm. and choose those words, yeah, we will never have that same sense. No. Of understanding, it's everything. It's to do with the precise word choice, the rhythm of each word,
0: mm. the syntax, the alliteration, whether it rhymes. And, obviously, all of those things, and it's incredible to me how different two different translations could yeah. be. Yeah, and exactly. sometimes I couldn't even recognise. I had to read multiple lines in in the poem side by side in order to figure out that I was up in the right spot. Comparing yeah, right. them because they look quite different, and I have to confess, I just chose the translations that I preferred.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah. like well, I guess that's this, sort of so. what you do, though, isn't it? Like, and yeah. this is a really interesting thing as well. Sorry, I'm just totally interrupting the no, biography no, no, just fine. just to talk about this for a minute because I do think that this is a fascinating thing because also translation again, it comes around, and we've talked about this in a lot of ways. It also comes around to the time and the lens. Through mm, which you're translating mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. I suppose a translation that somebody would do of her work now would be very different to a translation that somebody yep. would have done of her work 20, 30 yep. years ago. Versus somebody, a
0: twenty-five-year-old woman who translates yeah. her poetry versus a seventy-year-old man exactly. who translates her poetry. Like And yeah, and
1: we we're talking at, 100%. I think we we're talking about this the other day as well, of a new Sort of translation that's recently come out of Beowulf. That's like mm. again, by mm. you know, it's, it's it's a really radical new translation yep. through a very different lens in a very different time. And yeah. I love this about poetry in translation. Like I love the way that we can shift and change. So yeah. anyway, I just wanted to to pause and ask that
0: question. But it does make you wish that you could speak the original language and, and, and that's to right to actually read the poem in Persian yes. in in her voice. Yeah, that's really, right. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but we can't. We can. so so, so can't, well. We <laughs> so could learn carry version, on. Yes, but yeah, I wouldn't be able to read it for a few years. That's true. <laughs> okay, so that was really just to paint a picture of her life, her interior and exterior life as a child. Her parents like as I said, they were middle-class. Her father was a military man, so he was a little bit kind of authoritarian, very strict. Her mother was quite firm as well. They were very much a family of rules and regulations. And Farah said, well, she was much more stubborn and had a bit of a temper, as apparently did the other children as well. She was not Alone Mm. in this, Mm -hmm. but they were, as I said, kind of encouraged to be intellectual and to be artistic. Mm. So there was this sort of balance between conservatism and progressiveness, Mm. um, which will come out in some interesting ways in a minute and so she went to school she went to a co-ed primary school but by the time she was in high school and she went to a girl's high school Reza Shah had been deposed okay so instead the British and the Russians were occupying Iran and this caused huge huge upheaval for most people in Iran and a lot of people suffered economically but Farakzad's family were pretty protected from a lot of this due to her father's position and connections and so even amongst some of this political turmoil she who still lived a relatively sheltered life and politics doesn't come into her work until a little bit later in her career. So she went to an all-girls high school where she first began to write in verse. She was particularly taken by Ghazal poetry, which is a traditional Persian form. At 15, she went to the school Kamal al-Mulk, another girls' school for the manual arts. And here she also learnt painting uh, and dressmaking, which she said really helped her poetry she found that you know writing and being creative
1: came more easily to her when she was engaged in these other arts Mm. at the same time Mm -hmm. that's interesting because I I think that's kind of true isn't it like yeah yeah, when you've kind of when you're keeping your hands busy with making something and your mind can kind of wander Mm -hmm. into those yeah exactly
0: and she said that like after she would um finish dressmaking she'd she would be able to sit down and just like write a poem Mm. and it's probably that whole thing of you know your brain is just sort of working quietly in the background while you're engaged in this you know tactile labor with your hands and and then it's ready to go when you sit down
1: yeah sometimes I don't it's not quite the same thing but sometimes I don't mind doing (laughs) the dishes for that exact reason Mm -hmm. because I just stand there and do the dishes my mind wanders by the time I finish doing the dishes I might have an idea for a short story Oh, well, I wish that happened to me. But a big <laughs> 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 Oh, well,
0: I haven't had an idea for a short story in such a long time. Oh, it's all right. There's, oh, there's okay. the summer break. There's the summer break. There is. The summer is coming for us yeah. here in Australia. Okay. Now, at 16, Farrakh fell in love, of course, oh, because you our do. young ingenues always fall in love as teenagers. And it was with a distant cousin named Paviz Shapoor.
1: He was a satirist. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to say for a minute. Oh, okay. Sorry. Carry on. It's
0: all right.
1: What did you think I was going to say? Satirist? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. It's 16. Well, wow. 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 well, she right. knows what she likes. She's getting in early, starting early. Okay. That's not what you said. That's fine. No, it's not. He was a satirist. Okay. Also getting in early, though. How old was he? Well, he. This is the thing.
0: He's fifteen years older than her. Oh, oh,
1: oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. She's fifteen, like sixteen, right? Yeah. So he's like thirty-one. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. So
0: look. Perhaps not surprising, her parents were not super fans of the match actually Mm -hmm. because of this age difference. But he was like a common sort of fixture around the Farrokes at home because they kind of moved in these sort of intellectual circles and she thought he was very witty, very intelligent, of course. He was, you know, another young intellectual, a writer. But, you know, the families disapproved. They didn't really care. They got married anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Yes. So she married that young.
1: Oh, my gosh. To a 31-year-old. <gasps> hmm Okay. Holy crap.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. And they moved to Avaz, a city in the south of Iran. And it was, like I said, like a match of intellect. So he was already a member of the Iranian literary scene, though he was like relatively minor, but he was somebody who she could talk to about her interests, Mm. about her opinions. And this was something that she didn't necessarily get from her own father, who, while he did encourage her intellectual pursuits, I guess didn't take her... As seriously, or she couldn't get that
1: kind of affection from mm. him in the same way that she got it from
0: uh, Shapur. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that you say it was a match of intellects. Like, it's an interesting thing to think that a 16 year old girl has an intellect <laughs> to match a 31 year old, a 31 year old man. man.
0: Well, yeah, I guess I, I mean, he was very encouraging of her, but this is something that's going to come up in a moment because they had a baby, they had a son named Kamiar. And she started to, you know, go out around others in what was considered at the time quite scandalous clothing. Ooh. So she wore short skirts, tight-fitting dresses, clothing that was very in vogue in the 50s, you know, in the West, mm-hmm. but perhaps not as common in Iran. She could get away with it because she was married and this gave her right. a certain level of respectability. But even so, it was still seen as being pretty risque Mm. she also like while she was very fashionable and quite sexy she was also described as being a bit sloppy (laughs) like just didn't i guess pay attention to details you know
1: sometimes that is sexy though isn't it sometimes it's that little bit of that little bit of like unkemptness that is sexy yep
0: Well, other people describe her as just being very individual Mm. and a bit flamboyant in how she presented herself. So maybe like flamboyant to one person is messy and unkempt.
1: To another. To another.
0: (laughs) So she spent a couple of years with her young son and her husband writing poetry in avas. But, you know, okay, so yes, he's an artist. Yes, Uh he's a writer. Yes, he's an intellectual. Uh But I think, yeah, It turns out marriage is perhaps not what she hoped it would be and, look, she was 16 when she got married. So, you know, whatever passion had lit the fires of that young, youthful romance had turned into something a little bit different. She found that she wasn't really being taken as seriously as her male contemporaries at some of these gatherings that they would go to. What a surprise. Mm. Another surprising thing for you, Alicia, is that she was often hit on and
1: sexualized at such gatherings. Oh, you don't say. Wow. Mm-hmm. How, again, how surprising. Yeah. Actually, can I just quickly ask, how old was she when she had her son? Well, it was only a year after they got married, oh, right. so she was like 17. Yeah, so she's still a teenager. Yeah, yeah okay. very young yeah, yeah, still. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she's quite the young, attractive girl mm-hmm. in this crowd, older men. Yeah. Of course she's going to yeah. get hit on at parties.
0: And... Because of that and other reasons, rumours began to circulate that she was having an affair oh. and, look, there's pretty good reason to think that she was. She probably was okay. is the thing. Yeah, look, yeah. But, again, she's like 17. Her husband's no longer really giving her what she wants and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm young and I'm beautiful.
1: Why not? Yeah, just kind of and I haven't fun. really experienced much as yet. I've been with one person yeah. and had a baby with them. Maybe it's time yeah. to...
0: Spread my wings. What was worth noting, though, is that, yes, it was sort of, that there were these rumours that she was having an affair, but her husband, he did allow her to go out. Like, he did encourage her to pursue her art and to be, you know, a kind of active citizen in the world. He wasn't, like, holding her back or anything. And even her own mother wrote to her husband, Shapur, warning him that he was allowing her too much
1: freedom. Oh, wow. Oh, my
0: gosh. Yeah. Which, (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Look, <laughs> she was having an affair so but still no we don't agree with that in 1955 at the age of just 20 had published her first volume of poetry titled tellingly asia which translates to the captive
1: oh wow yeah that is telling but again yeah <laughs> as you said at the start of the show do we Are we reading biography well, directly into that? Yeah, and I mean, look,
0: this is why a lot of scholars do read so much biography into her poems because even the names of her, she's got four major collections and the names of each of them, even just the names, let mm. alone the themes of the poems within them, the names are very telling of the stages of her life that she's at mm. and what she's experiencing. Um, this is not something that's going to... Go away. Very mm, significant. Okay. So, yeah, The Captive has all the poems with these themes of, you know, the themes of these poems really indicate feelings of entrapment, you know, particularly within the confines of traditional marriage, which, let's be honest, is not an uncommon theme for female poets of the mid century. Uh, in fact, she has actually been called Iran's uh, Sylvia Plath. How
1: did I that... know you were going to
0: say that? That's, yeah. Yep.
1: If... <laughs> Yeah, it was obvious. there's a number of illusions that are going to come up in this to sylvia plath <laughs> oh god as long as she doesn't end her life like sylvia anyway i'm we unless- will tell i will
0: i'm telling the story oh, unless- no! <laughs> she
1: doesn't no no she that's not what happens
0: okay but there's All some right. other things anyway okay she writes about love about sensuality about desire and this kind of almost desperate sort of longing. There's a particular scholar, Michael Hillman, who has written quite extensively about Farakzad, and I owe a lot to his biography of her. He writes that in this first collection, the reader confronts a poetic speaker who's open to the charge of ignoring Iranian bounds of literary decorum and who, as an eye representing a woman poet, transgresses bounds of traditional social mores as well. In one poem, Face to Face with God, she asks, or the speaker asks God to free her from desire and lust. It goes, Oh, Lord, O oh Lord, whose powerful hand established the foundation of existence, show your face and pluck from my heart the zest for sin and lust.
1: Oh, I like that.
0: Yeah, and in this collection in particular, a lot of the themes around desire and sexuality are shrouded in sin. Yeah. While she does kind of yet transgress by acknowledging so many things that were taboo about female desire and talking about sexuality and talking about intimacy it's not necessarily an empowered version of intimacy it is still kind of shrouded in this sense of guilt Mm. or this sense of Wrongness, Yeah. You know? So I
1: suppose it's also being that coming back to that idea of the captive. It's being mm-hmm. held captive by those sins and by that guilt and by those emotions as much as by any circumstance mm. you might find yourself in too.
0: Yeah. And speaking of that, a poem called Rebellion published in Captive goes – Come here, O self-centered male creature. Come open the door of the cage. I am that bird, that bird who for a long time has had thoughts in her head of flying. Come open the door so that I might spread my wings toward the bright sky of poetry. If you allow me flight, I will become a flower in the rose garden of poetry.
1: Mm, So Mm. nice.
0: Which... I don't know if you can read into that little poem at all, but there seems to be a little bit of a conflict between her duties as a wife and a mother Mm. and, uh, you know, her devotion to her son, who she called Kami, and her artistic pursuits. And that's very much kind of a major conflict of the collection is Mm. between this kind of domestic life versus her artistic life, which, well, again, if we look at someone like Sylvia Plath or Mm -hmm. any writer who came before, maybe... The year 2010, (laughs) like we could see, you know. So the voices in this collection reveal a huge range of emotions, joy, loss, regret, anticipation. Um, She writes a lot about love, heartache, and men who are sometimes possessive and proud and sometimes actually are selfless lovers. And this collection had a huge impact. Many felt quite confronted not just by these sort of intimate and explicit themes of female desire and domesticity, but with the fact that it broke away from many conventions of Persian verse, which, as Mm, I said, mm -hmm. has this thousand-year-old tradition. No female poet had ever bared her soul quite as frankly as this, and another scholar, Shireen Madavi, writes that this bold expression of passion and emotion by a woman was absolutely revolutionary.
1: So she didn't struggle to get this stuff published, though, obviously. Mm.
0: No, she'd been writing and published in journals and things like that leading up to the collection. And because she was sort of already within this literary Circle. scene, yeah, 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 it found its way pretty quickly, actually. I think. And mm. and she's
1: still not like superstar levels yet, no, but the collection made a particular yeah. impact. Uh, well, because I'm just thinking, I mean, like, I wonder if the fact that it was so different and the fact that it did break away mm. from conventions is what made it sound like something that would be marketable and publishable something you'd want to put out there in the world or whether or not the publishing world Mm. felt sort of like well we can't publish this because what is this woman doing
0: exactly this is the thing the fact that it was modernist in style was seen as scandalous in and of itself yeah 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 so let alone the fact that it's a woman writing, and again, Shireen Madhavi says that it's the first recognisably female voice and perspective wow. in Persian poetry. So let all of that go and mm. even just the fact that it's modernist in itself is hugely controversial and sort of seen as representing this individualistic and, you know, kind of rebellious Sort Mm. of lifestyle, you know. Mm. So yes, the form itself
1: was controversial. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I suppose that's something you, as a publisher, or I don't know what publisher she went through, obviously. But that's probably Mm. something that you want to get ahead of, isn't it? That's something you want to be putting out in the world. Hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean.
0: Otherwise, I mean, I guess though it's the 50s and you probably are also dealing with a bunch of establishment types, yeah. I would imagine. That's what I wonder. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. So anyway, sorry, carry on again. There were a couple of other Persian poets who were writing or beginning to work in modernist styles as well. So there's a couple of them who were all sort of starting to experiment around the same time. But, you know, Farakzad is, I guess today, probably the most prominent of them. Mm, mm, mm. So another – Thing that's really interesting, and again, so this is a quote from Michael Hillman, who says that first, Forre's he refers to her by her first name, which is kind of interesting and problematic mm-hmm. in and of itself. Anyway, first Forre's father and then her husband introduced mutually contradictory values. Although they encouraged her to be an intellectual individual through artistic expressiveness, they nevertheless asked her to subordinate that same individuality to socially acceptable circumspectness and deference to paternal figures and conventional values. Mm. Of course.
1: Mm -hmm. Of course they do.
0: And a lot of people say that she, one of the reasons why the marriage was deteriorating was because she felt quite stifled under Mm. Shapur's influence and that he saw himself as her teacher and her mentor and that she had to write in his style or Mm -hmm. do what he wanted her to do and she did not want to do that. You know, she wanted to be an artist in and of herself. She didn't need a teacher. She didn't want to be condescended to. And I don't know how much of that is perhaps that age- difference or how much of that is gender difference yeah. how much of that is cultural
1: is that kind of like my fair lady pygmalion sort of thing yeah isn't it? like i will shape, <laughs> i will shape you in the image that i want you and i want yeah. you to be smart and intellectual and i want you to be all these things but only in the way i tell you to yeah
0: do as soon as you use that intellect to do your own thing yeah suddenly like I've created a monster <laughs> yeah precisely <laughs> yeah <laughs> which means that yeah she and Shapur divorced after three years of marriage oh, wow. they did try yeah and this was a huge deal so they did try to reconcile but you know sad just felt that she couldn't he, he was too paternalistic too restrictive and she just couldn't do it but this was a huge difficulty regarding their son, Kamiya, because Iranian law at the time, divorce law at the time, meant that the father retained custody of children in mm. divorce cases. Mm. You know, even once they changed the laws, which happened a couple of decades later, she still probably wouldn't have retained custody simply because, A, she had had an affair and she technically had no legal complaint Against him. So mm. he didn't abuse her, he didn't have an affair, etc. So her case to retain her son would have been very weak. Mm. Mm. The whole ordeal was made even worse by the fact that Shapur's family, so they gained custody of Kamiar and his family raised him. And they led him to believe that she had abandoned him in favor oh. of this artistic career and so that she could pursue her sexual desires. So basically they've kind of painted her as this, you know, slutty artist who doesn't want her son because he's standing in the way Mm. of her Being a wanted woman.
1: Yeah. Mm. Oh, how tragic.
0: Yeah. And so, like, yes, she did leave the marriage because of she couldn't continue her art under, Mm. you know, Shapur's influence, but... She did not leave her son, mm. you know, mm. for that reason. And this caused her extraordinary grief and heartache for the rest of her life basically. like So they were never
1: reconciled?
0: The family forbid her from seeing him. <gasps>
1: oh, that's Yeah, tragic. they
0: kept him away and the law was on their side. So they could yeah. forbid her from seeing him yeah. and there was nothing that she could do about it. Yeah. So she returned to Tehran to live with her parents, but this was difficult, (laughs) as I'm sure you can probably imagine, (laughs) and her father soon kicked her out basically because of her bad reputation. (laughs) She was bringing shame to the family. and So she ended up living with a friend, another intellectual, a woman this time though, just because she was female it didn't make things less controversial because, of course, there's all these rumours about what those intellectual women get up to. Oh, yeah, we all know
1: it's a big lesbian orgy, isn't it? Of course. Of course. I mean, they're writers, so what else are they going to be up to? That's right. You can't just have two women living together. That doesn't happen. It has to get sexed up.
0: (laughs) Harry, who was her friend, she had studied in France and the two would read Persian translations of French poetry together, which introduced Farakzad to more forms and styles of poetry and she became quite influenced by French poets. Meanwhile, her reputation was becoming more and more controversial. Mm -hmm. She was publishing more poems in journals and things like that that were becoming more and more explicitly sexual. And now that she was divorced, she didn't have that protection of marriage to... Mm You know, I guess you can write sexy things about your husband but you can't write sexy things about your
1: not-husband, you know. That your lovers. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly.
1: That respectability falls away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this veil suddenly what you're allowed and not allowed to do. She did have flings with some of Iran's literati, many other – well, I say many, I actually don't mean many – some, a couple, <laughs> <laughs> of other poets and editors. And if these ended up in what are thought to be pretty thinly veiled portrayals in her poems, which, of course, just added to her notoriety. One of these affairs was with the editor Nasir Kodia who was, and this became particularly notorious, she details some of this affair in one of her most famous poems, Sin. May I read to you again?
1: Good name for a poem. Yes, lay it on me.
0: Bring it on. <laughs> okay in that quiet vacant dark I sat beside him punch drunk his lips released desire on mine grief unclenched my crazy heart I poured in his ears lyrics of love all my life my lover it's you I want life-giving arms it's you I crave crazed lover for you I thirst Lust inflamed his eyes. Red wine trembled in the cup. My body, naked and drunk, quivered softly on his breast. I have sinned a rapturous sin, beside a body quivering and spent. I do not know what I did, oh God, in that quiet, vacant dark.
1: Ooh. Lauren, you should go into reading audiobooks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so nice to read. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded lovely. (laughs)
1: Oh. I, I love like those it. last lines, mm. those
0: last lines. I do not know what I did, oh, God, in that quiet, vacant dark. So ah. good. So good. I think I used the word delicious before, but that's how I feel after reading that. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, oh, yes, give it to me. Love that's it. why I, I spent a lot of time reading her poems when I should have been writing notes. No, that's part of the research. What am I talking about? <laughs> that is that a, is a, part a of very research. pleasurable part of the research. Unfortunately, this affair was short-lived and... <laughs> The editor, korea he published his own version <gasps> of the affair oh, in no. some short stories. Again, very thinly veiled portrayals here. Only these were not very flattering. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty savvy readers were able to put two and two together and figure out the kind of intertextual nature of this poem and these stories that spoke to each other, of course, published like at the same time by these two quite prominent literary figures, and they're both like, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem of being in one of those circles, isn't it? You're Uh all just writing about each other Yeah,
0: Mm. except that she's writing this extraordinary poem about how much she desires him and, you know, all the kind of sexy times they've got up to. Mm. And then he's writing, I guess, less flattering portrayals of how it'll break down. And it took quite a toll on her. And, in fact, her family even had to kind of come forward and ask him to stop writing about (gasps) it.
1: Oh, my God. Which...
0: Look, this, I guess on top of the ongoing turmoil of her divorce and the ramifications of the separation from her son, I guess the guilt in that kind of internal struggle that she was feeling about that, plus this growing intensity around her love life, caused her to suffer a nervous breakdown. She actually attempted to take her own life and was admitted to a psychiatric clinic.
1: She's still only like in her 20s, mm-hmm. early 20s She's in though? her
0: early 20s at this point, mm. yeah, yeah, really early 20s. She was subjected to electroshock therapy, which, look, sounds very shocking, but actually that was kind of normal. I mean, I don't know how I feel about electroshock therapy. I've just no. heard it's not as bad as we all
1: think it is it sounds really shocking. Yeah, and I think it's often painted as very, very shocking. Mm. But it's still... Still not good. Still, yeah, still not great. Still not what you
0: want. And on top of this, the public began to think of her as this mad woman, you know, because the press were writing about her breakdown and she was represented as being crazy. One magazine quoted the medieval writer Altai Labi, which says heaven forbid the day when the daughters of Eve who are lacking a rib become poets and beware the day they go mad.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) I know. That's fucking, that's kind of great. Actually. I really like that. In a very
0: fucked up way, but like, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you can retake and reclaim. reclaim You can reclaim that. that. That's what I mean. When the daughters of Eve who are lacking a rip become poets, beware the day they go mad. Indeed, beware the day we go mad. That's what I mean.
1: Yeah. Like, definitely take that one back for sure. But at the time, it wasn't great. To, and definitely not intended in that way. Certainly intended Absolutely to be not. Yes, very, very no. a genuine, like, oh, see, this is why there's no
0: female poets. You can't trust them. All those. It's too much for their delicate brains to
1: handle. Lady all this. intellectuals, no, thank I
0: know. you. No. Because the thing is that yes, her writing is beginning to be taken very seriously, but she still looked down on because she's a woman as I said that she is really the first identifiably female voice in Persian poetry like and that became a big part of the way that she is remembered I don't know she herself wrote about the fact that she can only write from a female perspective but ultimately she's writing from a human perspective and Mm. she didn't want to be seen as a woman writer it's Mm. like yes she's writing about female stuff because that's human to mm. write about female stuff. And, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. And even little things, like I said, this scholar, Hillman, who has written heaps about her, he refers to her as Faro and so did everybody else at the time. They used her first name. And that's something that continues to happen Mm. female writers are referred to by their first names male writers are referred to by their surnames and there is an issue of respect in that there's a a lack of respect for female artists and authors and intellectuals to refer to them by their first name that is Mm. why we use surnames on this podcast you know unless there's a particular reason why we use their first name
1: yeah yeah we've talked about that before it definitely does tell us something about status it tells us something about status and about how we value those individuals Mm. and she was also referred to as a poetess instead of a poet
0: you know Mm. it's these little things that just sort of add up to this not taking her quite as seriously Mm. and so when she then suffers a breakdown as I think is not you know under the circumstances of her life not perhaps that surprising it sort of allows this particular narrative of her to emerge mm. in a way that kind of continues
1: to diminish her really but she was released <laughs> and but it's also like it's such a female narrative though isn't it like, yes it is. well, i mean it,
0: it is uh, this is another one of the it's, it's one of the reasons why she's compared to sylvia plath like sylvia plath's Poems are extraordinary, obviously, but there is a reason why stories of poets with history of mental health issues—you know—that's mm. the thing that's being compared between the two of them. I'm sure, yeah. Rather than yeah. the poetry the itself, the poet, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it's the even biography. Though, of course, they
1: they have similar themes, but yeah, it's the biography of that female hysteria, isn't it? Like- yeah. Oh, yeah. here, here's another woman poet who's had to be institutionalised because that's mm-hmm. what happens with women poets. Yeah. That's the only way we can deal with them.
0: Yes, yeah, so she was released <laughs> eventually, but she still wasn't really herself because obviously you don't just, like, get over these kinds of things immediately, but... Not long after, she began a relationship with another poet, uh, Poor, another French educated modernist. And again, her attraction to him was probably based on the fact that they were, again, very kind of intellectually and creatively matched. The relationship lasted until 1956. And according to him, she just kind of like at parties, men would again flirt with her and she just wouldn't stop them and kind of made it apparent that they could flirt with her and that she knew that men found her attractive. And he said that while he still loved her, he found her impossible to be with.
1: So <laughs> is there that, you go. Is that bad if somebody flirts with you? Should you stop them? I don't know. No one's flirted with me in a very long time, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> yes, anymore. they have. That's
0: not what? true. Do you remember when we went to Biblioteca and the barman with the long beard, he was giving you free drinks.
1: Oh, yeah. That that was probably a, That was probably a year ago. <laughs> That was a while ago. That was a while ago. That was when I was still, like, (laughs) vaguely in my prime. No one's scared
0: of the since then. Uh, So not long after this, that first collection, The Captive, was reprinted, but this time with quite a political afterword in it, she defends her right to write freely about her own, quote, hidden instincts and tender, fleeting emotions. And she criticizes the double standards that exist. She writes, men everywhere have described their love and the beloved with utter frankness and freedom. And people read these books with complete equanimity. No one's screaming in protest that, oh lord, the foundations of morality have been shaken and general (laughs) modesty and purity are about to collapse and the publication of this book is dragging the morals of the youth to perdition. So that's a great afterword that she added to that book Uh, it's
1: good I like
0: it which again kind of sums up where she's at in her life (laughs) in 1956 she traveled to Europe for nine months and this was like a really important part of her recovery she wrote that it brought back her peace of mind Um, she felt calm and hopeful and strong it also Influenced her poetry. She learned other languages. She picked up Italian and German, a bit of English. Shit, she's still only like
1: 21 or something. This is
0: 1956, and she was born in
1: 1935. Oh, holy shit. Okay. I know. Fuck How <laughs> I she know. crammed all of this into her life already. By 21, she was
0: divorced, published a collection of poetry, suffered <laughs> a mental child breakdown, she couldn't see. had a child, God gone fuck. to Europe. Yeah. I know. <sighs> I know. This is why she's fucking brilliant. She's amazing and the trip is seen as kind of giving her this much more mature outlook which influenced her poems. So that year she also released her second collection. So yes at 21. Her second collection was called The Wall.
1: Oh which okay. remember is- that we're
0: thinking about the significance of the titles of her collections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's 25 poems in the, in this collection and these are a little bit less about love and yearning and instead reflect a kind of more anxious and reflective voice. The collection, interestingly, was dedicated to her ex-husband, which through the poems she moves towards certainty, I guess, as the speaker in these poems sort of grapples with decision-making, grapples with the implications of the past on the future, which are kind of, I guess, reflective of maybe how she was feeling in deciding to leave her husband and therefore her son. Mm. Also, I guess we can think of the wall maybe in terms of reflective of that breakdown or of that divide of past and future. Her third collection, Rebellion, contained many of the poems that she wrote in Europe and Tehran afterwards between 1956 and 1958. So she's a little bit older by now, like Mm. 23, 24. Mm Oh, yes,
1: yeah, so much more. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and this collection becomes even more sort of political. It's a little bit angrier and incorporates more aspects of traditional Persian poetry but also kind of playing with a lot of those conventions. One poem called Return explicitly captures the grief of her separation from her son. Here's an excerpt. I rested against the wall. I said slowly, is that you, Kami?" But I saw that nothing remained of that bitter past but a name. So, yeah, and look, when she actually names her son by the pet name that she had for him in that one, we know it's
1: probably. I wonder, I mean, he must have read her poetry at some point in his life. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at
0: this stage, he's still
1: a baby, really. Like, he's still a toddler.
0: Yeah. Or not not a toddler. He probably would have been about, actually,
1: six or seven or so, maybe. But at some point in his life, surely he would have read her poetry (sighs) and maybe come to have a bit more of an understanding of where she was coming from and what she could and couldn't do, I Mm. suppose. I hope so. I mean, I didn't get to
0: look that far into her biography, but, yeah, that would be a really interesting Mm. thing to know because she's so famous. He would know who she is. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Like there's no escaping
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I suppose that's a question we can't answer Mm. at the moment.
0: Well, Hillman, our mate, he argues that this poem represents the final lullaby and her recognition of the finality of this separation from her son. So her sort of Mm. acceptance that he's gone from her life and she can't get him back. Yeah. And Variksad herself refers to Rebellion, the collection, as, quote, the hopeless thrashing of arms and legs between two stages of life, the final gasps for breath before a sort of release.
1: Oh, wow. Mm. That's a very poignant way of
0: thinking of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also, again, this third collection is called Rebellion. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking about the stages that she's reaching in her life. She's calling this this thrashing of arms and legs. Like I said, the poems are angrier. They are more political. It's like she's moved from that young girl who feels this guilt and shame about her desires into somebody who is just like, wait a minute, this is fucked. Mm -hmm. and i'm angry and i'm sad and why have i been punished for that yeah yeah in a little bit of a different track though in 1958 she also began working as an assistant at a studio called golliston film studio and so you know with rebellion in particular she had become you know she's kind of getting towards household name status now she was you know, very successful, beginning to be really renowned as a poet. But that doesn't make her wealthy, you know. So she started to work with a man named Ibrahim Golston, an avant-garde filmmaker and writer. She was just doing some, like, basic office work, answering phones, all that kind of stuff. Ibrahim was uh,
1: married with children. Oh, no. Where's this going? Oh, you know where it's going, Alicia. (sighs) I do, don't I? Yes, you do. Yeah. Say it. They had an affair. They
0: had an affair. Yes, they oh, did. Dear. He set her up in an apartment in Tehran. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. The two would attend parties together, particularly, of course, literary events. They caused quite a scandal, of course. The press particularly picked up on this affair and criticised their behaviour because, I mean, he's married, she's divorced. It's, you know, 1958, 59, quite scandalous behaviour. But he was really encouraging of her work and I think he's probably one of the first people who did respect her intellect and her art but without wanting to make her in his shadow yeah. you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so uh, he was very encouraging of her work and he wasn't patronizing and she had a lot of kind of intellectual and creative freedom without him really being threatened by it but that's not to say that the relationship wasn't difficult they were <laughs> no you know, it doesn't sound like it's not difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of tensions they're also of course two intellectuals, so they're probably they're butting heads a lot they're arguing a lot Uh, at one point tensions really boiled over to the point that she again attempted suicide this time she ingested his sleeping pills the maid found her and she did make a recovery but you know she's not a well woman i suppose in Mm -hmm. in that way like she's got demons she's she's suffering still mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. And despite the rockiness of their relationship though, he also did support her and influence her not only in her writing but in another new creative venture which was filmmaking. So in 1959 she went off to England to study film production. Mm. She ended up kind of taking on a range of different roles within the film industry in Iran. She worked as a producer, as an actor, as an editor, And as a director, the most significant of her films was one called The House is Black, which is a documentary about a leper colony which was made in 1962. It won the 1963 Uberhausen Film Festival Grand Prize for Best Documentary, and it's considered to be an essential part of the Iranian New Wave movement.
1: Oh, how interesting. I never Mm. even heard of it. And you can find it on YouTube. Oh, really? Wow. Yes, you can. God, that sounds like it would be a pretty intense watch. Well, it is
0: about a leper colony. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I guess, about drawing attention to the hardship of life.
1: Yes, that doesn't sound like it would be a fun watch.
0: No. What might maybe make you feel a little bit better though is that during shooting she met this little boy named Hossein Mansouri and he was the child of two lepers and she ended up adopting him and she brought him to live at her mother's house. Oh, as long yeah. as
1: that's what everyone wanted, then that's fine.
0: Yeah, I assume that that's what everybody wanted. I've not read anything <laughs> negative about this adoption. As
1: long as you can just like Stole steal, a child. steal the child away, then that's all. Yeah. okay.
0: I assume that this was all above board and okay. his parents were not well enough to care for him. Okay. okay.
1: <laughs> we'll go with that.
0: Yeah. So this brings us to her fourth and final collection of poetry called Another Birth, which was published in 1964.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a much more hopeful title.
0: Isn't it? Yes, Much more we're turning a corner here. Another birth is a revolutionary kind of collection, um, not only because of what it represented in her own life, her own sense of renewal, her own sense of you know turning this huge corner, but also this was the collection that really solidified her as one of Iran's greatest poets. Mm. You know, if she wasn't already seen as such, she was now. Like it was, there yeah. was no denying that she was.
1: The fucking real deal. And people really did take her seriously. And so when you're talking about this, like, very long tradition of Persian poetry um, and the way that she breaks away from it, I mean, obviously you're talking about rules around... Like genuinely rules, as poetry Mm. has a lot of rules around sort of syntax and Mm -hmm. meter and rhyme and these sorts of things. Yeah, the form and the structure. Yes, but also
0: the type of imagery used, the themes, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff as well. So, that form and structure, style.
1: And, yeah, voice and themes, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And so obviously with that modernist sort of poetry that she's writing here, a lot of it is – well, I mean, obviously, again, it's in translation. But a lot of it sounds or I would assume is much more free verse, much more sort of even into that sort of style of of prose poetry, like Mm. really – breaking away from following any of those sorts of it forms does. of syntax and style. But as I said,
0: in these two later collections, she does start to return to some more traditional forms okay. and play around with those a little bit. So it's a bit of a mix, I suppose, mm-hmm. her later mm-hmm. stuff. I guess she's showing a little bit more of an awareness for some of the traditional forms in her later work. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to pretend to be anyone who can speak to the traditions of Persian poetry with any, you know, sense of
1: expert (laughs) authority at
0: all. So what I would do is encourage you to read some of the papers that I'm going to link to that will be able to explain it far more eloquently than I can. Nice. Yeah. All right. But yes, it was still definitely modernist and a lot of modernist critics hailed it as a milestone of Persian modernism. And it also represented this new birth for her. It was political, it was much more mature collection. Her imagery becomes darker. It's actually a little bit apocalyptic Mm. and in a sense, her poems are quite prophetic in more oh. ways than one, and I'm going to come to that. Okay. So one poem called Earthly Verses gives us this sense of this prophetic and apocalyptic vision. And, again, I am going to read to you because
1: I really want to and That's you're okay. just going to listen and enjoy. And I'm, I'm going to enjoy it and then I'm going to turn it into an audiobook for later. <laughs> okay. And, again, this is just an
0: excerpt. So... Then the sun grew cold, the blessings left the land, and the green grass on the plains dried up, and the fish in the seas dried up, and henceforth the earth no longer accepted the dead unto itself. In all the pale window, night continually swelled and overflowed like a nebulous imagining, and the roads abandoned their continuation in darkness. No longer did anyone think of love, no longer did anyone think of conquest, and no one thought about anything anymore."
1: You know what? We used to do poetry reading nights. That was something that Lauren and I used to do. We should go yep. back to doing that. I Why don't we do that again? Them. It's so nice go. having poetry read to you. It's such you a love nice it? thing. We used to go to dozens of them. Well, yeah. I suppose, you know, COVID doesn't help you it run doesn't. poetry <laughs> nights, does it? But anyway.
0: But they are coming back. Because here in South Australia, things are very good. We've followed the rules and we get to live the rewards of following the rules.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But we're also very lucky. We're also very lucky. (laughs) We're also very lucky. But, yeah. Sorry. Anyway. That's it.
0: Anyway. Okay. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of what her poetry is becoming.
1: Mm. It is quite different, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Like it it has sort of shifted and changed from those earlier It's got this far darker, more foreboding sense it's really reflective it's really internal and i think well her work has always been reflective and internal but there is a darkness Mm. there that wasn't there it even
1: seems more sort of metaphorical
0: in a sense i Mm. suppose as Mm. well like i think her use of imagery changes a lot yeah 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 Yeah. from that sort of nature it's still nature but nature has become something else Mm. Mm -hmm. you know
1: Yeah, whereas those earlier sort of examples that you gave were a bit more sort of straight down the line in terms of like actual sort of emotion and action, whereas this seems a little bit more we've kind of gone more into the space of analogy and metaphor Mm. and imagery.
0: Yeah, and it's totally apocalyptic. Like it's, you know, that's a poem really about the end of the world, (laughs) you know, like Mm. the earth is everything's dried up, everything's dead, no one has space in their lives to think Mm. or do anymore because everything around everyone is drying up and is dead. The sun grew cold. Mm. The blessings left the land, you Mm. know. This was released in 1964, Mm. Mm -hmm. right? Like (laughs) when I read this poem, I was just like, oh, my face (laughs) is falling off because... It's genuinely – and like I said, this is just an excerpt. It's quite a long poem. I really encourage you to go and find – like you can find a lot of her poetry online. Oh, yeah. Of course you can buy the four collections. There's another collection as well. But, yeah, do go and read more. Anyway. In 1966, she travelled to London again with plans to study more filmmaking and directing. And she also again travelled through Italy and Germany. And she wrote to Golestan that she felt like an outsider amongst all these, quote, vital activities. And she wished that she'd been born closer to it. but. As she writes and I quote, it is a shame that my life and capacities have to be wasted merely because of my love for the land and attachment to memories. Yes, wasted as I've done to this point. When I see the differences in life here with its aware flow that moves forward with such force as to inspire and awaken constructive activity and creativity, my brain fills with blackness and despair and I want to die.
1: Jeez, right. She thinks she's wet. Wa- yeah, Okay. Mm-hmm. Well then, what the fuck have the rest of us been doing with our time? Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's not enough to become one of Iran's most important poets. Fuck! If she's if she's wasted her life, what the fuck are the rest of us done? Oh and God. again, she's like thirty now. Not even. Oh, she's like yeah. 30. She's yeah. a fat. Yeah, you're. She's right. She's no, sorry, alien. I lie. She is thirty. She's oh. thirty one. What a yeah. failure! What a failure! Yeah. What a what a waste! What a waste of life! Hey,
0: <laughs> well, I want to bring us back to the idea of prophesizing, as I mentioned earlier, because on these travels she also met with an Italian palm reader who told Ooh. her that she was very much in love with a man, which was true. Yeah, that's a pretty
1: standard guess. But
0: she was like very in love with Golestan, by the way. Like she was tremendously, tremendously in love with him.
1: Yeah, okay, but, but still,
0: the palm reader also said, Uh-oh. Alicia. Oh, no. That a blooding accident was coming.
1: Oh, geez.
0: What does that mean? That's not good. No, it's not good, Alicia. It's not good. So not long after she returned to Tehran, indeed, she and Golistan were involved in an accident. And she was so upset by this and blamed herself that she swore that she would kill herself if anything should happen to Golistan. What was this accident? I think it's a car accident. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then... On Monday, the 14th of February 1967, Faragzad, who's now 32, she had been visiting her mother. On her drive home, she had to go to the studio, drop off some props or something to do with the filmmaking, and she swerved her car to avoid another oncoming car and she hit a wall. <gasps> she was thrown from the vehicle, but she died of head injuries. Oh. Mm. Okay, and that is how. Yeah, thirty-two years old. Wow. So she was rushed to hospital, but apparently she didn't make it. Though there's differing accounts because Galliston said that she died in his arms.
1: Oh, okay. But he. But I'm not he... sure. Okay. Well,
0: yeah, that's the thing. I didn't think that he was with her. So maybe in the hospital. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe she made it. Did make it to hospital. And Either then, way, yeah. the head injuries were too severe, <gasps> and she didn't oh. make it. How Mm. horrible. 32. Wow. 32. Imagine. We've done this before. Don't go down this path. Don't go down this path. I won't. I won't. Instead of going down this path, I will tell you that one of her final poems, one of her, again, most famous and significant poems, I, oh, my God, please, if you're going to read any of her poems, read this one. It's called Let Us Believe in the Dawn of the Cold Season. Oh, I like that title. Oh, isn't it gorgeous? You can already Mm. tell from the title. It's Mm -hmm. considered to be um, not only one of the most significant works of modern Persian poetry but a prophecy of her own death. Oh, God. So here is an excerpt. This is my final reading, I promise. Okay. And this is I, a woman alone at the threshold of a cold season, at the beginning of understanding the polluted existence of the earth and the simple and sad pessimism of the sky and the incapacity of these concrete hands. Time passed, time passed, and the clock struck four, struck four times. Today is the winter solstice. I know the season's secrets. The wind is blowing through the street, the beginning of ruination. I am cold. I am cold and it would appear that I will never be warm again. I am cold and I know that nothing will be left of all the red dreams of one wild poppy but a few drops of blood. I shall give up lines and give up counting syllables too. And I will seek refuge from the mob of finite measured forms in the sensitive plains of expanse. I am naked, naked, naked. I am naked as silence between words of love and all my wounds come from love, from loving. Will I once again comb my hair with wind? Will I ever again plant pansies in the garden and set geraniums in the sky outside the window? Will I ever again dance on wine glasses? Will the doorbell call me again toward a voice's expectation? I said to mother, it's all over now. I said, things always happen before one thinks. We have to send condolences to the obituary page.
1: Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, you need to sit with that,
0: don't you? you I do. mean,
1: you yeah. do. Yep.
0: This poem is exquisite. Like mm. it's—I don't know how to express how I felt when I first read that poem. Like it's—it's mm. it's stunning. It's mm. so much, and it is remarkably prophetic as well <laughs> you know it's like she sensed the end
1: and so this poem because you mentioned there were five collections so for well, this f- four collections that she released in her lifetime and then yep. there's another
0: one that has been sort of posthumously published
1: yep and so I this think. final poem or this poem does this appear afterwards after her death this particular poem was published posthumously yep Which I think Mm -hmm.
0: kind of also, you know, makes it even more significant in Mm, the -hmm. way that it was received because of its themes, obviously. Like it's like, (laughs) you know, very death-like in its themes. Mm, (laughs) mm Death-like is such an eloquent way to put that. Yeah, so it was published posthumously. It was then lauded as one of the most exemplary kind of examples of modernist Persian poetry, Mm -hmm. there was another collection that's been put together in English called Sin, Selected Poems of Farah Farakzad. Okay. So along with the other four collections that she published in her lifetime, which have also been translated into English.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you said, we can access those. They are are things we can find. You can
0: find lots and lots of her poems online, Mm
1: -hmm. heaps
0: of them. But, yeah, that's basically the biography of the woman who doesn't believe that her biography really has anything to do (laughs) with her poetry, but scholars Um, disagree. She, I mean, look, the only things left to say really is that her funeral was attended by many within the kind of literary and intellectual community. Fans mourned her loss. I guess they still continue to mourn her loss. Apparently she was buried as the snow fell and mm. she has, I'm sure this is going to come as no surprise whatsoever, but been hugely influential in a number of, you know, writers both in Iran and outside of Iran since then. Um, there's some fabulous, if you go to the Foro Faroxad's webpage, farokhazadpoems.com, there's this list of perspectives which are, you know, just these short little um, snippets of people Including Alicia Ostraka, Alicia, who, or Alicia ah, yes. Ostraka, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, writing about her and what her work means to them. And I encourage everyone to read that as well mm. if you want to learn more, because it kind of demonstrates how important she's been to a lot of people. As I said, she remains one of Iran's most beloved poets, even if she wasn't, is still somewhat controversial. Of course, Iran has had a very turbulent history since her passing, but, you know, poetry remains such an important part of Persian culture. And she is a superstar of Mm. Persian poetry.
1: Well, thank you so much for introducing her to those of us who were unaware of her, as I was. That was a really, it's funny because we've done quite a lot of writers recently. I know. Yeah. (laughs) But but that one was that one was actually a little bit different. We went somewhere a little bit different with that one. We had a poet. We were outside of sort of that Western realm of writing for a little while. So we we did go somewhere different, I feel. Yes. And that was what I really wanted to do. (laughs) Yes. We didn't traverse too much of the same ground, I think. No. Which was good. So thank you so much for such a fascinating story to round out our Season, season four? four. It's the end of the season. Uh, the end of, you know. Maybe we should read
0: more poems like Earthly Verses and hope that that is not what the world is <laughs> in a few
1: weeks' time. Oh, sure it Lord. won't be. No, no, no. Maybe what we should do is just start up another Reading night. (laughs) Or as some of our listeners have suggested a few times in the past, like a seance salon is really Oh, yeah, that's (laughs) right, a seance salon. Yes, let's do it. Every time we talk about spiritualists and (laughs) seances and salons, somebody contacts us and is like, can you please start a seance salon? (laughs) We should should genuinely do that. Yeah, maybe that's how we'll kick off Season 5, with a seance salon. Yeah, maybe and also that... Cruise that we talked about in the last Yeah,
0: episode. we'll invite Faroksad,
1: <laughs> we'll invite Demorier yeah. we'll invite Shelly, we'll invite all so of them. Good. And you Angela know what? Carter. This would be a really fun thing to do for a fringe show if somebody wasn't having a baby. That was gonna, you know, mean that we can't do a fringe show next year. <laughs> so sorry about that. There's always 2022. There is, there is always 2022, but somebody's getting married in 2022. That so, is true. I'm getting married in March, time. right in the middle of Fringe. I didn't really think that through. Oh, well. And so okay. I guess we'll see where we end up in 2021. What brand mm. new spanking stories of women we can bring to you for season five. There's a Still never got a very long list. list. That's right. Lots that, of them to get through. We don't. Have any foreseeable end to this. So, (laughs) and if a baby's not going to end it, nothing will. We'll be here forever. For it, forever.
0: forever Forever. we'll be we'll be recording this as ghosts from beyond the grave everyone will have to set up seances with their (laughs) podcasting microphones to
1: bring deviant women to the world (laughs) that sounds terrific actually but of course in the meantime even though we will no longer be sending out new episodes to you over the summer there is that entire back catalogue of episodes mm-hmm. that you can listen to. And if you really need some extra episodes, uh, there will still be
0: a few new Patreon episodes coming out. And, of course, we have a whole backlog of our Holes in History catalogue, our little mini episodes. I say mini, but most of them are actually probably like 30 to 45 minutes, yeah. not that mini. So there's heaps more in there to keep you going if you truly miss
1: us. Yeah, we did start out thinking that would just be mini episodes, but they just got longer and longer Yeah, today, which As everything just does. sort of normal episodes. But that's all right because yep. it's, it's more... <laughs> (laughs) bang for your buck, of course. That's right. And we are, speaking of bang for your buck, we are also working on hopefully a new T-shirt that we will try to release as soon as we've organized it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we but if you want one of our regular t-shirts you can find them on etsy we are hoping to be able to open international shipping again soon because postage in the time of covid is obscene but if we also have our pins there as well if you want one of those
1: and of course if you can't afford to support us financially we completely understand and you can just leave us a review if you like because that's just as good as money mm-hmm. it is it is. truly is especially well if it's five stars it's as good as <laughs> yeah if it's a two-star review then send us money don't, instead just don't bother don't
0: bother (laughs) please (laughs) and alicia look i'm just going to say on behalf of i'm sure i'm going to assume on behalf of all the deviant women listeners that we wish you all the very best over the next couple of weeks and uh, i'm sure everyone will be thinking of you and sending you their
1: best wishes as you enter into this new period of your life that's right as a mother so now that means that the next one after this is hag so, yes, now I, I do You're the mother nearly thing. nearly at hag goals. I'm nearly at hag goals. Get reaching. Just going to get through the mother stage, closer. get the mother stage yep. out of the way, then into hag goals. Yep. And it's, it's going to be a beautiful thing. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll see how that all pans out. We will keep you updated on the social medias if you'd mm-hmm. like to know. And otherwise,
0: I guess a very big thank you as always to Brenda Davies for the sound, to India Hui for the music, and to Dan, our executive producer. And
1: we'll see you, who knows, when we'll see you next. Sometime in 2021, (laughs) but we will see you again. So until then, stay safe, stay well, and we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.